Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to StageCraft, Variety's theater podcast, your backstage pass to revealing conversations with stars, creators, and industry leaders, on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm Gordon Cox. On this episode of StageCraft, I'm talking to the actor and writer Patrick Page. He's the Broadway veteran with the very deep voice who originated the roles of Hades in Hadestown, Norman Osborn, aka the Green Goblin in Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, and The Grinch in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. He's also been a memorable Scar in The Lion King and Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast. On top of all that, he's a widely recognized classical actor with a deep bench of experience in Shakespearean roles, and he's bringing all that experience to bear in his new off-Broadway solo show. It's called All the Devils Are Here, How Shakespeare Invented the Villain, and in it, Page explores all the ways the Bard revolutionized theatergoers' understanding of evil and the people who commit evil deeds. Now, the actor's in the virtual studio with me to tell us all about it. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Now, of course, we'll talk in just a minute about All the Devils Are Here, but because this is an audio medium, I wondered, I, I thought we should maybe start with something that occurred to me as I was watching your show last week. You know, it had been a while since I'd seen you on stage, and, you know, we all know you have a very deep voice, but then we are confronted with it uh, on stage, and I thought, I wonder when he knew, like, at what point did you know that you had the voice? Wh where were you in your life when you figured out that... Uh -huh. uh, your life, your your voice uh, was going to have the sound that it would. Well, I remember in my, I believe it was my sophomore year of high school, between my sophomore, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm congested. I have this terrible cold. Hopefully Please. the Sudafed will, Sudafed will kick in. <laughs> uh, uh, between my sophomore and my uh, junior years of high school, I think that's when it was, uh, I was, cast as the MC in Cabaret, oh. 
which is a very it's not I don't think it's quite a tenor role, but it's a it's a very high baritone role. Yeah. Um uh and it might be a tenor role, I don't know for sure. I haven't listened to it in a long time. At any rate, um I, it was something that I, I could thought I could sing and then my voice began to change. Mm. And by the time it was time to do the play, it was a real struggle. Um and then I remember after that uh, we did a Midsummer Night Stream, and I was playing Oberon. Yes, which was I think the second uh, Shakespeare play that I did of any consequence, and yeah. um, and of course Oberon is this marvelous lyrical role, mm. and I remember finding these notes in my voice um, that seemed to be right for the King of the Fairies, you know, at mm. the time. And playing around with them and, and just sort of discovering this instrument. So I suppose it was around that time. Yeah. And so, at, and then what did you do to kind of develop your voice as you went about training as an actor? Well, I mean, uh, it, it's a long journey. I mean, mm. I, I always had a, quite a sturdy voice. Uh, mm. I, I, I trained it in the way I, I used to read biographies of... Uh, all of the great British Shakespearean actors. And um, there was a very muscular approach on their part. I remember Richard Burton talking about going out into the hills of Wales and, and simply shouting these roles at the top of his lungs in order mm. to strengthen those muscles. And I, and I did that. Um, and, and just like training a muscle, you, you train it to the point sometimes of fatigue and then you rest it. And then it comes back a little bit stronger, you know. Um, yeah. And then uh, when I was cast in Beauty and the Beast in 1995, I had never anticipated having a career in musicals at all. Mm. I was cast in the first national tour. And um, and my agent really encouraged me to look into, uh, you know, having more of a career in musicals. It's, it's just a, there's just a lot more work. Mm. And so I began to sort of train as a singer and and then got more serious about trying to add notes to my voice and everything. And for years, all of my all of my voice instructors were keen on trying to turn me into a, a baritone who could sing all of the great, you know, uh, roles that were written for baritones in the 30s, 40s, and 50s mm. for John Raitt and and you know uh, all of those great singers, Jerry Orbachkin. And I, I just never was that. And then finally someone said, oh, you're a bass. And the minute that happened and we began to train in that way, uh, it, what was funny is not only did it open up the fullness of my voice in terms of the bottom of my voice, but it opened up the top as well. Mm, yeah, yeah. And what do you do to maintain it now? You know, we were supposed to record, a, you know, a few days ago and you had to go on vocal rest, which is a thing that lots of actors have to do all the time. Um, what? How, tell me about kind of the process of, um, you know, maintain just making sure it stays healthy now. Well, I do a full vocal warm up. Uh, a, a singing warm up seems to be the best for me mm. uh, before every show. So I, I hit all of my notes. I make sure the breath is moving. Um, I do a full physical warm up because the body of course is so integral to the voice. Mm. Um, and that takes about uh, an hour to do, um, before the show. And I, and I do it before every show and I, and I do it when I'm not performing as well. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the play you are currently using your voice to deliver is your own play. It's called All the Devils Are Here. And it's about the development of the villain as a dramatic figure throughout Shakespeare. And going through your resume, even outside of Shakespeare, you do seem to play villains with some frequency. You know, you can quibble with the idea of Hades being a full villain, but certainly Norman Osborn and the Grinch and Scar. Why do you think that is? Is that a product of having the voice that you do? I think it's probably partly that. I mean, mm. there's a strong, a strong t tradition in the theater of, uh, of those roles being uh, more bass roles. And I suppose that comes from opera mm, um, yeah. to, to some extent, um, where those roles are differentiated, you know, between Mephistopheles and Faustus. Mephistopheles is the bass part. Um, Sparafushil uh, uh, is a bass part. Um, mm. the, those... There's a tradition there. I, I think maybe we have that. Uh, you know, I talk about something in All the Devils Are Here, which was a, a, a pseudoscience in the 16th century called uh, the art of physiognomy. Right. And it's, it's identifying um, moral characteristics based on physical characteristics. And we still do that just reflexively. And... Um, uh, so I think when you watch uh, movies, you uh, attach certain attributes to certain kinds of people. So Alan Rickman uh, plays a lot of villains. Um, uh, you know, Christopher Walken plays a lot of villains. Sometimes it's a vocal characteristic. Sometimes it's a physical characteristic. Sometimes it's a behavioral characteristic, as I think it is mostly in Christopher Walken. Um, and uh, yeah, I, 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 we're, we're all, for lack of a better word, guilty of that to some degree or another. Yeah. And, and indeed, that's a lot of what All the Devils Are Here is about, yeah. is about trying to free ourselves uh, from that kind of tribal thinking and to look inward and to say, oh, wow, I, I have these qualities in me. Mm. Yeah. Do you... Was it your experience playing villains, a string of villains that got you thinking about all the devils are here? Tell us a little bit about the genesis of the piece. Well, if I, I suppose it partly was. I mean, mm. if uh, it partly was, and mostly it's it's because of my love of Shakespeare. Mm. And then it happens, it just so happens that Shakespeare investigated evil as deeply as, as any other person in history um it was one of his great interests and concerns along with love and power um and so that it's a very rich vein to uh take as a, 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 a something to explore in shakespeare um and and it happens that these characters uh many of them have soliloquies so they have a marvelous interaction with the audience which when you're doing a one-man show is very useful because um, obviously the audience is is your partner. It's the, it's the only new thing every night. It's the audience, so it, it's very helpful. Um, and a lot of these are characters that I, some of them I've played, some of them I would like to play or haven't played, um, and wanted to explore. So yeah, uh, and then it, it also just a, a a moment in the world where I thought Shakespeare has something to say to us right now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we're at a moment where we seem to choose sides very quickly. 
and decide that someone is good or someone is bad and then align with the good and identify ourselves with the good, which I think is a very perilous thing to do um, because it means that we're, we're not looking inward to say, well, where, where might I be mistaken? Yeah. I, I did wonder throughout the, cause you mentioned that you played some of the roles, not all of them. You know, you, you open the show with Lady Macbeth, who I imagine is not on your resume, but which of the roles have you played before and which are the ones that, uh, that, uh, you, you've want to play? Well, I've played Richard III, but I've mm -hmm. never played Richard III in Henry VI III, which is the speech ah. that I do yeah. in, uh, and of yeah. course, he's not Richard III, then he's Richard of Gloucester. So I get to do that speech, which yeah. I never got to perform when I was playing Richard III. I think Richard III is one of the great roles ever written for an actor. Um, mm. I I haven't played Barabbas or Aaron, uh, which mm. I play in this, and that's fun mm. to be able to do that. those juicy kind of early characters that are very, um, yeah. very broadly drawn. I've never played Shylock. I have been cast as Shylock and worked on the role, but I, it's a role I very oh. much like to play. Um, and uh, I have played Malvolio. I have played Claudius. I'd like to play Claudius again very much. I have yeah. played Macbeth uh, and Prospero and uh, and so Iago. Uh, and and Iago and and, and, uh, yeah. and Angelo in Measure for Measure is a role mm. I'd very much like to play as well. Yeah. Yeah. Has your conception of any of the characters that you've played previously changed in the years since you've played them? Well, they always change when you when you approach them again. For example, mm. I just played King Lear in the spring, mm. and I've, I've worked with yeah. Lear my whole life in various capacities. And, and uh, a year or two ago, I, I taught a 12-week course on Lear. And whenever you go back into the play as an actor... Of course, you're confronted with your acting partners across from you, and they uh, reveal new things for you in terms of, uh, of what the line means. It, of course, it means an entirely different thing when spoken to a human being than it does when you're looking at it on the page. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it stays alive, and it keeps moving. The meaning keeps moving and shifting. I suppose my main takeaway in that production was just uh, well, first of all, how specific and accurate the, the depiction of uh, the dementia was on Shakespeare's part, but also the humor, the tremendous humor, uh, sense of humor that Lear has, sense of irony, and and uh, and the way he uses humor as a weapon. Um, all of that was a, a great uh, uh, revelation to me, playing it. In terms of these characters in uh, in All the Devils Are Here, um, each night I, I make new discoveries, but I, it's, mm. it's, uh, it's a funny thing because since I'm out there by myself the whole time, I don't have, uh, even a nanosecond to, to, uh, evaluate any discovery. Mm. So everything I discover happens that night and then it's gone because I don't, I don't have any time to, uh, it, it's just as if you've lived it because if I let my mind rest for a moment on, aha, something new happened, well, I, I then I'm lost for the next moment. Yeah. There's no, there's no time. It's like air traffic controlling. There's no time to to, to think. So um, it's, I, I will, in the moment of discovery, have the aha, and then maybe the aha will come again tomorrow night, or maybe it won't. But I, I, I don't. I don't really remember the aha after the show. Right. Yeah. Do you, can you tell us a few of the experiences 
experiences that you've had in your career that really shaped your understanding of Shakespeare's villains and that contri that really contributed to, um, you know, the, the work that you do in this show? I think maybe the first one was I saw an actor named Dennis Arndt when I was 18 or 19 years old at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Quite a mm. brilliant, brilliant actor, a brilliant actor in the classics. Um, and he played Iago. And I, I watched and I thought, oh, he's doing something different than everybody else on stage. He was a human being. And I don't know why. It was just like, oh, yes, these are people. I mean, you know, and, and how late to get the memo when you're 18 or 19. But if you see a lot of Shakespeare performed as if they're something other than people, they're the, uh, these Shakespearean creatures or something. And all of a sudden, here's this man just talking, just doing. That was that was very formative for me. Hmm. Um, and uh, I, when I was a child, I listened constantly to John Gilgood and, and Laurence Olivier they were very formative for me in terms of the speaking of the verse because they were completely opposite. Gilgood uh, mm -hmm. uh, was completely vowel-oriented and uh, Olivier was completely consonant-oriented. Uh, and then that sounds pretty technical, but it, it, it was uh, th this kind of staccato delivery uh, on the part of uh, Olivier and then this lyrical kind of legato delivery on the part of uh Gilgood, and by mashing those two together, and then and then sort of going, oh, these are human beings. I don't know. Right. It, it released something in me, um, and then I'm always just watching, you know, watching, watching, stealing, stealing, stealing from anyone I can. I'll have more with Patrick right after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now, here's more with the actor and writer, Patrick Page. And tell me about the process of writing the play. How did you go about kind of culling through the Shakespeare to find the characters and then you then the speeches that you focus on? Uh, well, the premise of the play is that it's a, a chronological exploration yeah. of how Shakespeare did this. So the chronology itself, once you've settled on that, and people differ about chronology, but there's a generally accepted uh, order in which the plays were written. One might, you know, quibble about whether Titus Andronicus was before Henry VI, three or after, but we know they're both early plays and so on. And once you've settled on that, then you can sort of say, aha, this character emerges here, this character there, and then you can sort of look in those characters or what is it new that Shakespeare, what was the new discovery with this character, right? And so, for example, with Claudius, this this really fully formed conscience emerges. Um, what, a, what an extraordinary thing, and what an act of empathy that was for a playwright to say, oh, these people who do terrible things, 
they also have a conscience, just like me. It's very easy for us to look at, you know, a terrorist organization or neo-Nazis or whatever and say, oh, they must not have any conscience. Shakespeare said, what if they do? What if the Nazi goes home to his uh, children at night and puts Christmas presents under the tree with all the best meaning? Um, and to really ask about that. So in each, in each with, with Shylock, for example, that, that sense of uh, a person being wronged and having a real uh, deep motivation for wanting to, to right an injustice um, and, and a logic behind it. Uh, and that, that is, a, I think, a, a Shakespearean contribution. So it's really looking in each case at, like, what was the new emergence in each of these characters? And how much did you rely on or did you rely at all on sort of scholarship on Shakespeare? And, like, how much is informed by your own reading and how much is informed by your own insights, you know, just over the course of your career? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd in that way. So over the years, I've, I've read essentially anything I can get my hands on about Shakespeare and it's all in there in one way or another. So, um, sometimes I'll have an insight and I'll think, Oh my gosh, I have this brilliant insight and I'll go back to a book I read 30 years ago and now, Oh no, it's not an insight at all. I read this in Harold Goddard in, in 1989, you know, mm, but, yeah. um, uh, uh, so it, it, I, I think it's that, um, mm. I chose not to work with uh, a, a, a scholar or a dramaturg, although I did bounce things off of friends of mine, off of uh, James Shapiro and Dakin Matthews and other people and Simon Godwin, who's my director. Yeah. But it, I think all of us, uh, all, all Shakespeare biography, and, and to, to some extent all the devils are here, deals with biography, is speculative. So you're always going to disagree so I may say, oh, wow, I think his relationship with the Dark Lady of the Sonnets really influenced uh, his creation of Shylock. Because one couldn't have a deep and passionate love for a person of color, a marginalized person, and then, not, and then be writing a marginalized person and not bring that love and empathy to that character. Mm -hmm. To me, there's a link there. Someone else may say there's no link there. Um, and uh, and so it's all speculative, you know. Were there any characters that you were unable to include, that you were hoping to include, that you had to cut out for whatever reason? Yeah, there always are. I, I, I We rehearsed, uh, uh, in, in previous versions of this, I had uh, a scene between Prince Hal and Falstaff in, which I really love playing. Um, but in terms of the rhythm and trajectory of the play, um, Simon felt that it would be, it would be leaner and clearer uh, if we if we cut that. I had a Mark Antony speech from mm -hmm. uh, the forum uh, in uh, which I think is so remarkably uh, prescient and topical in the sense that what Antony does in that speech is he he convinces uh, a violent mob to storm the Capitol and he does it with complete deniability. Um, and it, it's just remarkable that, of course, we see precisely that happening on January 6th in our own country. Uh, and now people will argue whether or not uh, Trump was responsible for that insurrection and pour through that speech to see, well, where did he tell them to storm the Capitol? Well, he didn't. 
And Mark Antony didn't tell them to storm the Capitol either. But is he responsible? So those those kinds of things are very interesting to me. Uh, you try to make a lean um, and and dramatic narrative in the evening. Yeah, and you you've talked a little bit about this, but can you expand a little bit more on what it is like to take on these roles and deliver these speeches uh, solo with the audience as a scene partner versus doing it in a full production, uh, you know, with other actors? Yeah, I mean, with a great source of energy for an actor, what you have is is your fellow actor. And really, if you're acting well, what you are is a reactor. You've done all your work. You know uh, the character very well. You know what the character's uh, actions are in the scene. Uh, you know what the character wants to accomplish. And then you go out uh, with uh, freedom and empty hands and an open heart, and you meet your acting partners on stage, and you see what happens. Mm. And uh, um, that, of course, is not a, a luxury you have in a one-man show uh, you have the audience and uh, and you have yourself I play in, in All the Devils Are Here I play some duo scenes where right. um, the two characters speak to each other and it's fun to try to let myself be surprised and it's, it's remarkable when I it, to me if I am able to surprise myself to, that what comes out of my mouth is surprising and that the other character has to respond to that surprise, and therefore that's surprising. Um, that's when I'm feeling good about the evening. Um, if it feels in any way locked in, then I, I I come off feeling not so good about myself. And again, with the audience, it's really an act of uh, trust in terms of letting that person, because the audience becomes a person. They develop a personality within the first five or 10 minutes of a show, they decide who they're going to be collectively and, um, and to let them be who they're going to be and to be okay with that, to say, oh, last night there was an extroverted partner. Tonight there's an introverted partner. And to, and to move forward with telling the introverted partner the story of how Shakespeare invented the villain. How would you characterize the way all your work with Shakespeare has influenced the way you work on pieces that are not Shakespeare, you know, something like Hades. How does, how does your understanding of Shakespeare and everything you've learned working with Shakespeare uh, influence your, um, your broader work? Well, I would say that Shakespeare has changed the way everybody works in that way. I mean, Harold, Harold Bloom's observation was he, his book was called Shakespeare, the invention of the human. And what he, meant by that is something similar to what I mean by the in, inventing the villain, which is that the creation of consciousness in these characters, their awareness of themselves, their awareness of their own thoughts, their awareness of their place in time and space, uh, and their full three-dimensional humanity. So an actor, a modern actor, who has any sense will always tell you they are playing from the point of view of the character to justify that character's actions, not to judge them from the outside. If you're playing Jeffrey Dahmer, you play from Jeffrey Dahmer's point of view. You justify his actions. Here are the reasons that he did it. They're perfectly sensible and, and 
irrefutable and undeniable to him. He may have, he may even loathe himself as Jeffrey Dahmer did uh, for doing it, but he didn't see any other option. He couldn't find any other way in his case to find, uh, he was so lonely, he needed someone to be with him who he could control and who, who he could hold and who he could be with and who could feel calm around. And when you find the point of empathy for that person and play from that person's point of view, to me, that's the Shakespearean insight. So in a way, all modern acting is based on that. And of course, with Hades, um, for me, that is always never to stand outside and say, ah, there's the evil, evil CEO of the underworld, mm-hmm. or there's the, the, the Trump avatar who builds the walls. All of that's not useful to me at all as an actor. What's useful is to say, oh, here's a man uh, with tremendous responsibilities and power, but who is deeply threatened and hurt by the distance that's growing between his wife and himself and will do anything to win his wife back and tries anything he can find. And that is, in every single scene, once you find the core of the character, the center of the character, the spine of the character, then that's what the character is doing. So if you're singing Why We Build the Wall, it may look like what you're doing is uh, inspiring the troops, the workers of the Hades town to build the wall. What are you really doing? All the energy is going over to left stage where Amber Gray is standing. And look at me, honey. I have all this power. You should be attracted to me. You should come back to me. Uh, look, look at my, look at how masculine and alpha I am. It's all a show for her. Once you know that, then you know how to play it. Yeah, yeah. In addition to your work as an actor, you've also been very upfront in recent years about your experience with hearing loss, and you've become an advocate for accessibility in the theater, both, you know, for the audience and for folks on stage and backstage like yourself. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about those experiences over the years, particularly in your work on stage. Yeah, well, I I probably started losing my hearing in my 30s. It's It's something that happens to most people gradually. And uh, the doctors aren't exactly sure how it happened. I probably have about 20% hearing left now. Mm. Um, So I have three different pairs of hearing aids that I wear in different situations. Uh, They're good at different things. Some of them are good at being very loud. (laughs) And uh, some are good at screening background noise. Some of them hide in the ears better. Um, But uh, I can't work without them. Uh, And uh, so... uh, yeah, and, and it, uh, hearing loss is very common. Mm. A lot of people are, are hard of hearing and um, are, I meet so many people, especially people's partners, who say, my husband or my wife or my father or my daughter uh, is has hearing loss and, and they don't want to get hearing aids for this reason or that reason. There's some stigma attached. Uh, and I just think it's so remarkable that we live in this period of time when there is technology. Uh, you don't have to live with this thing. And of course, hearing loss, I say of course, but it isn't obvious. It, it has repercussions in all other parts of life. It creates anxiety, terrible anxiety in social situations, a kind of terror that you're not following the conversation, that you'll say something stupid. Uh, uh, 
which I still have constantly mm. and, and therefore very frequently avoid group situations or, or like that. Um, it has repercussions, of course, for performers. I've worked with yeah. uh, performers who've approached me who have hearing loss of one kind or another. A young man approached me who was deaf in one ear and uh, it happened to be his right ear. And his problem was that when he came into audition, he found that the piano was always on the right. Mm. And he he didn't know how to say, could we switch this round? I can't hear in this way. And of course, what I advocated for is that I find people are actually quite uh, forgiving and, and kind if you simply approach them and say, come in and say, hello, my name is Patrick Page. Um, I'm deaf in my right ear, but I'm, I'm very functional. If we could just switch the piano around, if either you could come to the other side of the room or we can move the piano to the left, I'll give you a wonderful audition, but I won't be able to hear them on the right. You know, yeah. people can be quite generous about it, but you have to be upfront with people. Yeah, and it sounds like it took you a while yourself to get to the point of uh, using hearing aids. Was yeah. it as recently as Hadestown? Is that what I, I understand? Yeah, yeah. the first time I, I wore hearing aids fully was in Hadestown in London. Actually, the first time was in a in a uh, a workshop of Moby Dick, Dave Malloy's Moby Dick at oh, the yeah. public. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was just incredible. I mean, mm. because you you realize, I mean, I remember going outside and, and realizing that there were birds in my neighborhood. I never knew there were birds on 98th Street between West End and Riverside. I really didn't know. I had no idea. And there they were. Um, mm. And so there's just this whole world which I was not experiencing. And, um, and the sound designers on Hadestown were just so brilliant in terms of working with my hearing aids. We decided not to use an in-ear device for me, but to use my own hearing aids, which then they, we calibrated with their brilliant Tony-winning sound design. Right. Um, and uh, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's different with every show. Um, and I, 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 I do have to work very closely with the, with the sound designer. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were in All the Devils Are Here for the uh, a little while longer, and then what's next for you? Do you know? Who knows? I mean, uh, I'm I'm trying to keep an open mind. Um, uh, I, 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 right now, I'm. You know, we're all on hold because of this. Sure, strike. there's still a strike happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we don't know if there'll be a third season for example of gilded age or or right. schmigadoon or, or or the other shows uh madam yeah. secretary uh, i'm involved with a number of shows evil um yeah. and we don't know if, uh, if those shows will be going so uh, we're all just kind of uh you know on pins and needles yeah yeah what shakespeare character that you've never had the chance to play would you like to play next who's next on your list Oh, my goodness. That's a good question. And Simon Godwin, uh, my director for All the Devils Are Here, and King Lear and I have been talking about that. We're going to begin exploring The Winter's Tale, I think, in December oh. and, and see if that's a good fit. That's, uh, that is my favorite of the Shakespeare's. I think that's a, that's a good fit for you, actually. I, I, imagining that, 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 seems like, that seems like that could work. I will be interested to see that when it happens. Thank I look you. forward to it. Thank um, you. Well, thanks so much, Patrick. Thanks for taking the time. Nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. That was Patrick Page 
talking about his one-man show, All the Devils Are Here, now playing off-Broadway at the DR2 Theater. If you enjoyed this conversation here on StageCraft, I'd so appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. Or tell a friend about StageCraft. Find past episodes and subscribe at all the places you get your pods, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on the Broadway Podcast Network, a great place to find more theater for your ears. Until next episode, find me on Instagram and Twitter at Gordon B. Cox. You can also check out my new newsletter about international theater. It's called Jayquees, and it's at gordoncox.substack.com. Thanks for listening, and see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.